today we're going to explore, carry on from yesterday, from uh, last Sunday from John, Jesus' baptism in relation to the history of redemption and the person and work of Christ. Jesus is declared to be the Son of God by a heavenly voice, and the Holy Spirit rests on him to empower him to be the perfectly obedient to God in fulfilling his ministry and confirming status as the Messiah. So that is where we're going. If you will stand and open your Bibles to Luke 3, verses 21 and 22. Verse 21. Now it happened that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, holy triune God, who inhabits eternity, God of Spirit, please fill me and empower me to deliver your word faithfully today. Holy Spirit, give me the strength needed to preach despite my many limitations and weaknesses. May your word be profitable in all our lives. I ask for the dear saints that we will understand, apply your truth, and the world will, word would transform us more and more into the image of Christ. I also pray for those who do not know you, that are under your wrath right at this moment, that you will open the closed hearts to believe the truth. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. I ask this for your glory and your glory alone. In the name above all names, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So, my reach definitely exceeded my graphs this week. So we got through 20 verses last Lord's Day, and so we were going to do 31 today, but it didn't happen. So I know some of you are not surprised out there. We have gone from 31 through the week to the two. So we're going to go through those two, which is Jesus' baptism we still have his genealogy and temptation to go, and we will, Lord willing, take these on at a different point in time. So if you wanted to get a recap from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. So Luke describes John's mission as preaching good news. Its focus is mainly on the coming judgment and the call to repent. Even when he speaks of the ministry of Jesus, John's says more of judgment at this point than salvation. The bad news is a necessary part of the good news of the gospel. And there is a great deal of wrong with God's people at this point, which would be Israel, that must be put right before salvation becomes a reality. So baptism with water is itself not salvation. We knew this from last, last time going, going through John's ministry. It's a symbol of repentance. It's a prerequisite for salvation. True salvation depends also on the work of the Holy Spirit, which makes a person new inside. 
The reference here, of course, is to John's baptism, but the same principle applies once Christians' water baptism has taken place. Baptism with the Holy Spirit here and elsewhere in the Gospels and Acts speak not only of a separate ritual or even a separate spiritual experience, but of the inward reality that the outward act of baptism signifies. These are not two stages of initiation in Christian discipleship. They are the outward and inward aspect of the one life-changing experience that we call conversion. And so I want us to remember how bad the bad is, okay? It is against this black and hopeless background that the grace of a sinless and total moral and upright Savior shines forth. If there is any part of our composition that is not infected with sin, then there is no need for a perfect Savior. Christianity is a sinner's religion. We must see our state and condition as the Bible declares us to be. Because of original sin in Adam, we are by nature children of wrath. As the Old Testament shows, we are sinners by conception. From the top of our heads to the sole of our feet, we are contaminated and infected with sin. Our hearts, the engine of all we are and do, are by nature depraved. Those who were forgiven much, love much. Now behold how much you have been forgiven. So John's prepared the crowds for the coming judgment through their repentance, expressed in their immersion and ethical transformation, and testifies that one who comes after him is the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. It is better to see John as a bridge here, belonging in two worlds in both eras, one in the old and one in the new. His function is preparatory, but is essential, essentially part of the new era. Thus John preaches the gospel to the people, announcing them the coming of the Messiah. And by preparing them for this coming, John's message does not equal that of Jesus, not at all. But John introduces what Jesus will actually be bringing. God has always been ruling over his world. But the kingdom of heaven comes when God climactically exerts his power to accomplish the salvation of his people. The Messiah will baptize not with water in a preparatory way as John has done, but will actually baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. These are not two separate because they're attached with fire. They're combined. So commentators, interpreters have discussed where the fiery work of spirit is judgment or purification. And I've, we've had some of those conversations. And we as modern readers often find this difficult to associate the baptism of water with fire. But in the biblical background of the Old Testament, Isaiah 44.3, Ezekiel 36.25-27, Joel 2.28-29 show the concept of washing and refreshing as was associated with the Spirit. 
we may conclude that John and his contemporaries were already acquainted with these nuances. The Holy Spirit was understood as being active in saving, purifying, and rejoicing. The Holy Spirit had definitely, but not frequently, been associated with the Messiah. We can look at Isaiah eleven twelve, whose coming would mean also the availability of the Spirit's ministry. So the Spirit does come, as we, as we have talked with water, fire, fire also for purification, fire also for judgment for those who do not know our Savior. So our outline for this morning, we're not doing all six, so we're good. So we're going to spend the first three are in, are in verses 21 and 22. We're going to look as Jesus comes among the people to be baptized. We're going to look as he's praying, he's baptized. And then we're going to look at the heavenly manifestations. Heaven will open, the spirit will descend, and a voice will come declaring that he is his son. And then four, five, and six will have to be for Lord will in a later time. The sequence of baptism, genealogy, and testing by the devil that immediately follow are important theological significance. But this morning we can only concentrate, as you will see, on those two verses around Jesus' baptism. So verse 21, Now it happened that when they all were being baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while they were praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and the voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. So the main idea, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God by a heavenly voice, and the Holy Spirit rests on him to empower him to be perfectly obedient to God and fulfilling his ministry. His ministry is going to be gathering the people for God. God wants to dwell with a people. Jesus will accomplish this and bring a people to God that one day we will dwell with God. These short two verses complete the transition from John the Baptist to Jesus. The event is one of the most Christological significant in the entire gospel because it presents one of two divine testimonies given during Jesus' ministry, the other being the transfiguration events. And I never thought of that. We always think of the transfiguration. I never thought of the baptism like that. The baptism is significant for all the writers since Mark's the preparation point for Jesus' ministry, a ministry that begins with divine endorsement. Acts acknowledges that the event was significant. The endorsement is marked by two elements, the divine word from heaven and the anointed spirit. Together, these signs mark Jesus as the agent through whom God will work. So Jesus receives confirmation by revelation from God. Now we can start on verse 21. Now it happened. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened up. The first part. Now it happened when all the people. 
All the people is a hyperbole. So hyperbole, hyperbole is a basic literary form. Its use of intentional exaggeration and overstatement well, is used for emphasis and effect to make a point. There was a lot of people there. All the people. Of course, it wasn't all the people. Exaggeration. We're being baptized. And this is the setting for the, the Messiah will come in. It must be assumed that John immersed Jesus as he did all the other people. Luke ties Jesus' immersion to that of all people. So it's clear that Jesus submits to the same obedience and conditions required of all Israel. The description of immersion is subordinate to the heavenly events that occur after it and serve only as a setting. The baptism is a setting for what's about to take place. Also, by speaking of Jesus as baptized along with all the people, he allows the reader to reflect on Jesus' identification with those who he had come to save from sin. So we're going to take a small detour now. Hold that thought. Jesus is at the river. People are being baptized, but there's a conversation that happens. It's going to happen in, in Matthew where it's recorded. And especially the last two the last two verses of 14 and 15. So verse 13, when Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. Verse 14, Matthew 3. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, or permit it now, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him to baptize him. So for me, this is immediate, it was a mystery. John is seeing something. There's a conversation. We don't really understand what's going on. And then, then John go ahead, allows him to be baptized by him. So the question is, why did he resist and why did he change his mind? So John tried to prevent saying, I have need to be baptized of you and do you come to me? There's no indication given how John recognized Jesus as the stronger one whose who's coming is predicted. No indication. John is preparing people for the coming of Christ by his call of repentance. When Jesus himself comes to John, John recognizes Jesus as superior. I need to be baptized you, and why do you come to me? Of course, Jesus has no sins and does not need any forgiveness. He has nothing to repent. So it would seem John's baptism is totally inappropriate for Jesus. In comparison to Jesus, John is the one who does need to be repent and to be baptized. I need to be baptized by you. Jesus, unlike the people to come to John, is the one who was himself willing to be baptized. So we've got a couple of things, options here to reconcile this. One is, and this one seems to be becoming more popular in our day and age, is that John recognized Jesus as the Messiah and wants to receive Jesus' spirit and fire baptism. But this has a number of theological problems. 
It has to reconcile against John 1, 30 verses 34. Because there it says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. I did not know him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he abided on him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize him with water said to me, The one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen, and I have borne witness, that this is the Son of God. So, John did not know of the Messiah till he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. But we know John was a humble man. We know John was a prophet of God. This is number two. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit before birth. So he must have known there was one greater in his presence right now. For we do know from Luke 1.15, though he'll be great in the sight of the Lord, he will not drink any wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And if we look at Luke 1, 41 through 43, when Elizabeth and, and Mary met, and it happened that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? So John could detect, he's a prophet, that Jesus needed not to repent or confess. He recognized Jesus as the greater, so as the greater, he should be baptized by him. No different than in Hebrews 7, where Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek in Genesis. Then Jesus answers and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. Another mysterious statement. This statement was enough, and John went ahead and baptized him. Jesus said his baptism will be to fill, fulfill all righteousness. The word fulfill fits very well to the entire, entire complex of this happening. The coming of John the Baptist himself fulfills Old Testament prophecies and announces beforehand that he will be as a forerunner to the Messiah. Isaiah 40, verse 3, Malachi 3, 1. The coming of Jesus is, is the fulfillment of a long-standing promise of climactic redemption. Promises that began with Genesis 3.15. Jesus brings with him salvation, the saving rule of the kingdom of God. For Jesus to be baptized is one aspect of fulfillment and one aspect of bringing all righteousness. The deep righteousness that belongs to God and his kingdom. So how does Jesus fulfill all of this righteousness? How is he the fulfillment? The Jews are coming for repentance. 
They come for forgiveness of sins. Jesus has no sin, as we have noted. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we're going to look at Hebrews 4.15, 1 Peter 1.2.22. Uh, but he is the Lamb of God, John 1.29. The sin bearer, he identifies with sinful people. And he identifies with their sin. Because he is coming to be both the final sacrifice and the final high priest. You can read Hebrews chapters 8 through 10. Jesus' baptism is an act of humility. He consents to be counted as if he were a sinner, along with everyone else. The act is foreshadows the time on the cross when he will die for the sins of the people of Israel and indeed for the sins of all of us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Fulfilling, fulfilling all righteousness includes not only Jesus being righteously obedient to the Father's will, but providing by his perfect righteousness a righteousness for us all that we might become a righteousness for God. This act of exchange in which Jesus takes our sin and gives it to us gives to us his righteousness is depicted symbolically and beforehand when he is baptized by John. But the explanation given does not really say why this is the right way for us to fulfill all that's required for us to do. So Jesus affirms, in effect, that it is God's will, all righteousness, that John baptized him, and both John and Jesus fulfilled that will, that the righteousness, by going through it, is proper for us. The aftermath shows that the baptism really did point to Jesus as the Messiah. Within this total framework, we may recognize other themes. In particular, Jesus is indeed seen as a suffering servant. Isaiah 4.2.1. But the servant's first mark is obeying God. He fulfills all righteousness. Since he suffers and dies to accomplish redemption in obedience to the will of God, by his baptism, Jesus affirms his determination to do the assigned work. At this time, or now, may be significant. Jesus is saying that John's objection and this principle may be valid. John must, at this time or now, at this point in salvation history, baptize Jesus. For at this point, Jesus must demonstrate his willingness to take on the servant role, entailing his identification with the people. With John's doubts dispelled, Jesus is baptized. So the next part in 21, Jesus was baptized. It's recorded in all the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, John, of course, Luke. So let's look a little bit at the significance of this baptism. Let's keep building on, the, on this theme. As we discussed last week, baptism must be an act of identification instead of repentance 
since he has no need for repentance. Right? Jesus does not need the baptism. Jesus' baptism is an act, again, of humility. He consents to be counted as if he were a sinner, along with everyone else. He will die as the innocent one, as one who does not deserve punishment, as the holy and righteous one. Jesus was baptized not because he was a sinner or in need of repentance, but as a way of identifying himself with those he came to save. When Jesus is baptized, he is carrying out the plan the Father laid down before the foundation of the world. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he appeared in these last times for the, for the sake of you, of whom, of through whom are believers in God. The Gospels invite us to see the event of Jesus' baptism in the relation to a larger context. Each of the Gospels describes the ministry of John the Baptist and the significance of his baptism broadly. Each also alludes to the Old Testament backgrounds. And each looks forward to the baptism that Jesus himself will bring with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The gospel set the baptism of Jesus in the context of the age-long and folding history of redemption, which takes place according to the plan of God. The background of this story is found in Genesis 1 through 3. In the events of the creation and the fall, the fall of Adam is followed by the promise of redemption, again found in Genesis 3.15. The promise of her offspring and the offspring of the woman, which already points to Christ. So Galatians 3.16 will say, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. That is Christ. So in the LSB, whenever you see all caps, that's a direct reference somewhere in the Old Testament. The call of repentance is spread all the way across the pages of the Old Testament because human sin dishonors God, renders us guilty, breaks the fellowship with God who made us. Repentance on the part of man is necessary, but also atonement in order to deal with the guilt of that sin is necessary. In the Old Testament, the necessity for atonement is symbolized by animal sacrifices, which de depict the removal of sin through death of an innocent substitute. The sacrifices prefigure the coming of Christ in the final atoning substitute. These ceremonies point forward to Christ, whose blood cleanses us. John uses water in baptism, thereby signifying cleansing and the forgiveness of sins that is to come. So Jesus is baptized while all the others are being baptized. Suggesting that he identifies with Israel at the baptism. We have already seen that John's baptism signifies repentance leading to forgiveness. Jesus' baptism must be an act of identification instead of repentance since he has no need for repentance. 
He dies, the innocent one, as the one who does not deserve punishment, as the holy and righteous one. We will see the evidence in Luke 3.22 that he is indeed the servant of the Lord, suggesting that he dies for all the people. Verse 21c, and while he was praying. So while he is baptized, Jesus is praying, and he's praying. It never says he stops praying. He's praying. He continues to pray. The emphasis falls on what God does as Jesus is praying, not because of his immersion. It's because of the prayers. Luke describes heaven and opening up during Jesus' prayer. As he was coming up out of the water. So it's not the immersion, it's the prayer. We see Jesus begin his ministry in prayer and continues that prayer throughout his ministry. And now he is in heaven interceding for us. We can look at Romans 8. We can look at Hebrews 7. We can look at 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The emphasis on prayer and the importance of prayer, Christ showed us. And some key events just in Luke. He prays regularly during his entire ministry. If you read the Gospels, our Lord is always praying, always praying to the Father. He prays all night before he selects his disciples. He prays before asking his disciples about his identity. He prays when he is transfigured. He is praying when the disciples ask him how to pray. He prays for Simon's faith because he's about to get sifted. He's praying for Simon before he's going to the cross. That kind of stress, he's still praying for people. He's, he is praying in Gethsemane. He's praying as he's being baptized, as he's re receiving the anointing from God. So heaven's now open. So as Jesus is being baptized, he's praying. He's praying and heaven opens. The opening of heaven signals a revelation from God. For example, Ezekiel and John, the apostles, see visions when heaven is opened. Jesus promises his disciples they will see angels ascending and descending upon him when heaven is opened. Heaven opens and Peter sees a vision of the sheet coming down with all the animals, indicating that food now is all clean. When heaven opens, Jesus will come riding on a white horse and he will destroy his enemies. Judgment is coming. And heaven opens at Jesus' baptism, signifying that God is about to speak in a powerful way. The coming one stands in prayer before the Father as he receives the Father's endorsement and enablement. God begins to act. 
The picture of the heavens opening is a common figure for God's dramatic action. Usually a vision from heaven or merely, is, is, or merely for the breaking in Revelation. It's a picture of God stepping out of heaven to address his people, of God entering into our everyday world. This adds to the event's mood. Clearly, God takes the initiative to show humanity the way to him. The opening of the heavens is an indication that divine revelation is about to take place. The significance is after a period of apparent inactivity, hundreds of years, God himself comes down to act in power. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. The revelation following Jesus' prayer comes in two parts. The physical sign of the dove descending who will rest upon Jesus and a heavenly verbal testimony to him. This is what we would call a theophany. So theologians theologians have all these fancy words. So theophany. Theos. God, they know, means to appear. So basically all it is, is an appearance of God. Simple. We can use the word theophany more narrowly or more broadly. In a broad use, it would encompass not only obvious instances describing the appearance of God, but also appearances that are more veiled, as when God appears in a cloud and no one can see inside the cloud. A broad use would also include the appearance of God in the New Testament, include the appearance of Christ himself in the incarnation. Christ is the permanent theophany of God. The life of Christ on earth brings to fulfillment the entire spectrum of theophanies and appearances of God in the Old Testament. Temporary appearances give way to the climatic, permanent appearance. God became man in the incarnation. The presence of God that people experience in the Old Testament times comes to fulfillment in the presence of God in Christ. Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, manifesting God's presence at the climax of history. Because the New Testament has its center on Christ, everything in the New Testament is connected to the theme of God's presence. So the baptism of Jesus contains these phenomena of theophany. We will see three. Heaven is open, implying that there was a vision of God's special presence in heaven. The Spirit of God appears descending like a dove, and there came a voice, a divine voice. Such a theophany is fitting in preparing the way for the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. The Father authenticates the Son in his role as the Messianic Savior. 
The Spirit comes down to be with him and to empower him. The voice, by picking up on themes from Psalms 2-7 and Isaiah 42-1, indicate that Jesus brings the messianic fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. These events set the stage for the understanding that the Father is present in the Son through the Holy Spirit in all of Jesus' ministries. And the Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. Isaiah predicted the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon the Messiah. And thus the coming of the Spirit signifies Jesus' anointing and empower for ministry. The divine voice also signals the importance of the occasion. The opening signifies in visual form the opening of the way to God. Jesus, the Son, is always in fellowship with the Father. But this opening manifests the reality of that fellowship. Out of the open heaven, the Spirit of God will descend. The physical movement symbolized visually that the Spirit in the form of a dove is the Spirit of God himself who comes from God's dwelling in heaven. The Spirit is coming down to rest on him. The resting signifies the same thing that Jesus talks about in Luke 4, 18 through 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So, the big question always comes up, what's the big significance of the dove? We could spend the next three weeks going through all the theories. It's, and it was really difficult to discern. So the Spirit descends, and Luke alone emphasized the concrete nature of the experience by speaking of the descent in bodily form. A unique reference here showing that the Spirit is coming down as a visible experience. And so many different theories, so many different scholars, none of them are entirely satisfactory. Not one of them. Their attempts to make a theological symbol out of the dove seems flawed every, every time. It seems best to leave the figure of the dove as a simple metaphor and without any theological significance. He came down as a dove. The Spirit descended on Jesus with the grace of a dove. One scholar did say the dove was one of the, most, one of the more common and more familiar birds in Palestine, and there is no need to search for any more specific symbolism in the bodily form in which the Spirit appeared. As a dove or any other bird can be seen coming down in a light on a perch, so the Spirit was seen coming down unto our Lord. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Clearly, God's voice is meant. For it is a voice distinct from the angelic messengers who appeared directly to the people in the infancy section. The voice, pres voices present raises 
the question of what type of experience is present here. The commentators, they devote an enormous amount of time to all the possibilities in the Old Testament background, the words and the heavens, that they really fail to focus on what the Word actually says. I could have had 100 pages of notes just on that, and that's it, no. The voice saying consists of three parts, right? The reference to the Son. The reference that He's beloved, the beloved Son, unique Son. The reference to God being pleased with that Son. But I know you want some Old Testament, so we'll give a little Old Testament background. We, so the Old Testament background, as I said, is much discussed. It's important, but it is discussed a lot. Since the nature of illusions determine the Christological points being made about Jesus, we do have to have the Old Testament to understand the New, because, you know, the Old is the only Bible that they had, right? The heavenly voice clearly comes from the Father who identifies Jesus as his Son. This is the clear allusion to Psalms 2-7, in which the Messianic King is adopted as God's Son when installed as King. And we could spend another hour on the kingship, the anointing of Christ as king. We will not do that today. You can check it out in 2 Samuel 7.14. It's a fascinating look, but we just don't have time. Jesus' sonship, however, goes beyond that of the Davidic rule, for he is also the unique son of God. God's special and beloved son, the old word, old begotten son, the unique, there's no one else like him. He is the beloved. Jesus is not only the son, but also the servant of the Lord. As we see in the servant songs of Isaiah, we can go to 40, chapter 41, 44, 45, 49, 50, 52, and 53 to see that. Jesus is the spirit-endowed son and servant, the king, the one uniquely related to God, and as the servant, the one who atones for the sins of Israel. You are my son, whom I love. Designates that Jesus as the unique son of God, the words like those heard in the transfiguration. Luke 9.35 Mark 17, five, uh, Matthew 17, 5, and Mark 9, 7. The effect, the effect of blend of the Old Testament Christological passages here. Psalm 2, 7, Isaiah 42, 1. Here we may observe that the words love, well-pleased, convey the idea of choice and a special relationship. Jesus has now received his commission. He is ready, following the temptation that will happen in the first part of chapter 4, to begin his ministry. We cap all this. Overall, this dramatic event at Jesus' baptism has the features of theophany, the appearing of God, is like what took place at Mount Sinai. And to Isaiah and to Ezekiel, 
The opening of heaven is analogous to Ezekiel 1.1. The appearance like a dove is analogous to the Old Testament visual displays of the presence of God. The voice from heaven is like Mount Sinai and the voice of God to Isaiah and to Ezekiel. We see here, here an intense manifestation of the presence of God. And it is a Trinitarian presence. God the Father speaks from heaven. God the Spirit descends like a dove. God the Son is the one addressed by the voice of the Father. It is fitting because Jesus in his incarnation is the fulfillment of the Old Testament theophanies. We should remember John the Baptist's prophecy that the one who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This prophecy points to the day of Pentecost. On that day, the Holy Spirit came to apostles and the church as tongues of fire. And in this way, the baptism of Jesus provides a foundation for our baptisms with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is our representative Jesus was our representative already when John baptized him. He is our representative as sin bearer on the cross. He is our representative when he rises from the dead, therefore providing new resurrection life for those who are his. He accomplishes the plan of redemption ordained by God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit to gather a people for God to make a way to the Father. This is the gospel, or the good news of salvation for hell-deserving sinners through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of the Father. And I want to say, this is the gospel that should not only be preached to the unsaved throughout the world, this is the gospel we should preach to all ourselves, and this is a gospel you, sh you should preach to yourself. All of us should preach it, amongst us and within us, every single day. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you, not on our own. We come before you in a righteousness that was purchased by your Son. Through the blood, the death, and his resurrection, he has purchased a people for you, O oh Father. May we spend our lives praising you for that, studying that, adoring you for that, that you are, out of your love, have sacrificed yourself to appease the wrath of yourself on us. Lord, may we just meditate on that and just understand what that means and what that is because it'll spend an eternity understand the cost you paid to dwell among a people that you love, a love that's incomprehensible. Lord, we love you. We need you. We want you. We stand now and worship and glorify you. 
with us continue throughout all eternity. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.